Hey there, welcome back to the Rooted to Truth podcast, where we discuss all things related to biblical citizenship and American history. I'm Mackenzie Dickinson, your host here on Rooted to Truth, and in this episode, we are going to be continuing with our discussion from the last episode, where we looked at the history leading up to our Constitution's drafting. This time around, we are not only going to talk about influential legislative pieces, we are also going to be looking at the spiritual movements which contributed to the cultural and political shifts during this time in history. There is so much here that I can't wait to share with you. So without further ado, let's get started. All right, so last week we left off in the year 1215 when the Magna Carta was signed by the ever so reluctant King John. Even though the Magna Carta embodied the idea of liberty and attempted to implement it into society, it was not successful in hindering tyrannical leaders from oppressing the people. The reason being, in my opinion, is that the Magna Carta was a document expressing freedom, but the people were not spiritually free and therefore could not implement their liberation legislatively. From around 500 to 1500 AD, there was very little understanding of biblical truth amongst the population. Unfortunately, the people lived under subjection to the rule of the crown and were forced to seek spiritual scraps from the church leaders rather than feed off the word of God for themselves. The problem was sort of twofold. Number one, the word of God was not accessible to most people. And number two, even if it were, People couldn't read the text even if they tried. Back in the day, Bibles were not readily available and were only written in foreign languages such as Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. As the papacy continued to build its kingdom upon the ignorance of the people, God intervened in a multitude of ways, one intervention being the stirring of the heart of a man by the name of John Wycliffe. Wycliffe was a clergyman who saw the necessity of spreading God's word throughout the land. By 1382, he had translated the Bible into English and began distributing it to people. He also dispersed divine revelations of liberty to people through his work. In fact, in the prologue to his Bible translation, Wycliffe wrote that the Bible is for the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Of course, this movement upset the church because it deflected their power into the hands of the individual. The church did not want for the people to think freely and to have a personal relationship with the Lord. Once an individual receives Jesus for themselves and utilizes the self-governance led by the Holy Spirit— they no longer can be deceived into subjection to the crown or pope. It's for this reason the churches feared the common man having the book of all knowledge. To surrender such a powerful tool was to decrease their power and authority over the congregants. This fear of power being lost is what sparked persecution during the era known as the Reformation period. Now, before I get too much further into the Reformation period, I think it's important that I read over a few verses from Ephesians. 
These verses will help to set the stage and unpack the weight of the history we're about to get into. And now, I know how it can be. Learning about things from the past can be a little bland. In all honesty, before looking at history through the lens of the Bible, I was completely desensitized to the realities of these events. Actually, that fact alone is such a testament to God's goodness, because when I was not understanding the word of God for myself, these events that were taking place in the name of liberty were just that, events. They didn't hold any weight in my mind. But once I grasped for myself the unexplainable, incomprehensible love of God, I began to see why these historical events were so important for generations to learn and study. Not trying to go off too far on a tangent here, but what a demonic infiltration of our schools we have on our caseload right now. No wonder there has been such corrosion of our culture. People haven't been taught to value life and liberty because they don't understand the causes that so many men and women died fighting for. I mean, let's be honest. I was a little heathen thinking mass murder by decapitation or incineration was just another thing of the past. I mean, golly, it fries me thinking about how our children are being taught and just barely at that about history with an absence of divine intervention and motivation. Okay, I did go off on a little tangent there. I apologize, but okay, moving forward. (laughs) The scripture that we're looking at is Ephesians 6, verse 11 to 12, as well as verse 17, which says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In particular, I want to emphasize the word sword, which is the only piece of the armor of God that acts as a weapon. The rest of the armor is a defense mechanism against the attacks of the enemy. The word of God is so crucial to our lives as believers that the Bible depicts it as being the only weapon necessary for our victory in life. All right, so that being said, in 1455, the Gutenberg printing press was invented and the very first book produced using the new machine was the Bible. From that point forward, the accessibility of the knowledge of life and liberty increased amongst the people. A little later down the road in 1517, the Protestant Reformation was kicked off by the pinning of Martin Luther's 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg. God used Luther in Germany to stir up and disperse the realities of the gospel message throughout many different nations. The 95 Theses penetrated the fallacy of indulgences and pious acts of devotion in order to win favor with God. See, during this time in history, the church taught that piety and acts of devotion were the means to winning favor with God and paying off the debt accumulated by sinning. They taught the doctrines of purgatory punishment and works-based redemption in order to manipulate people into giving more money and power to the church and its leaders. 
Martin and so many saw the corruption of these teachings and were led in the spirit to preach the truth of the gospel message. I think it's really beautiful because the main message preached by Luther was that salvation and justification comes by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus alone. The way that God used Luther to disperse this message to a plethora of people is to me like the mustard seed that that starts out being so tiny, but grows into this behemoth of a tree. The message that salvation comes by faith alone was small in comparison to the dominating ideology of legalism that was being taught throughout Europe. But despite that, God spread the message of salvation by grace through faith, causing the understanding of internal liberty to grow like a mustard tree. The man to bring the Reformation to England was William Tyndale. In 1525, he was divinely inspired to translate, print, and distribute the Bible into English. Now keep in mind, William Tyndale did this during a time when Bible distribution was illegal. It's not like he went to the bookstore and purchased a few hundred Bibles to pass out to the locals. No, this man had his life at stake. He worked diligently under the cover and protection of God's wing to distribute the word to the common people. He even stated, if God preserves my life, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than the Pope. What's even more inspirational is how the previous statement displays Tyndale's awareness of the probability that he was going to lose his life, well, his temporal life. He did indeed die for his works against the corruption of the church. William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake, but his name lives on. Not only that, but he lived his life for the greater calling. Another influential reformer was John Calvin a French Protestant who fled to Germany and then to Geneva, Switzerland. John Calvin lived a lot of his life in and out of prison and on the move trying to spread the word of God. Around this time in history, there were many different ideologies and doctrines being preached, one of which was that of absolute abstinence from politics, which is absurd. But church leaders were teaching that civic involvement was wrong and unnecessary to the believer. Calvin opposed this and explained the importance of civil responsibility because of Christian liberty. He taught about the spiritual and temporal jurisdiction, which are both overseen by God. Calvin's commentary on spiritual and political topics became extremely popular and impactful upon many generations. So much so that Calvin's work is known as being a large influence upon the American Revolution. The Holy Spirit brought an awakening to a few willing hearts. He woke them up and called them into action. And it was by him alone that these men were able to accomplish so much despite such great opposition. Not only did God send his spirit to lead a movement of faith, he also sent circumstances to exercise that faith. Actually, one of my favorite things to say is that trials produce the fruit of endurance. If not for the trials of life, we would have nothing to test out the reality of our faith. 
During the Reformation, there was sort of this series of trials and tribulations, which acted as a refining fire in the production of unwavering faith and an external manifestation of liberty through the internalization of the gospel. To expound upon that idea, I'd like to begin in the year 1509, when England was ruled by King Henry VIII. Now, it's no secret to you that the church and government leaders were power-driven and tyrannical, looking to build upon their power continuously, right? Right. I'm glad we agree. So, during the beginning portion of King Henry's reign, we have, on one hand, a domineering Roman Catholic church established in England, and on the other, we have the king who is putting reformers to death for trying to hand out Bibles. Both the crown and the church were individually striving for control, but eventually they got in each other's way. Quite honestly, I find it almost amusing how the history of this played out because it truly demonstrates how sin knows no self-control. All right, so Henry VIII got in a quarrel with the church because they wouldn't grant him a divorce from his first wife for not giving birth to a son. So that's pathetic, but that's besides the point. What did King Henry do in response to the church denial for this petition? Well, King Henry VIII decided that he was just to divorce himself from the church. And so he established the Church of England in its place where he was acting as the Pope. Interestingly, Henry later decided to authorize the publication of the English translated Bible. If it were not for the Bible being given out and made accessible during this time in history, people would not have learned about God's intentions for government ruling. Once people got their hands on scripture, like 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Holy Spirit began to reveal to them just how far from God's intended path government had veered. Actually, just the other day, I reread 1 Samuel chapter 8, and I was absolutely blown away reading it. After having studied through some of these historical events from the Dark Ages and the Reformation period, I saw such similarity in the situations at hand. When God tells us that we should remember our history, we should reflect on the past so that we can be different in the future, he says it for a reason. He knows that if we forget where we came from, we will make the same mistakes in the future, and that's exactly what took place from the time of Samuel to the time of the introduction of limited monarchy in the Anglo-Saxon kingdom. I won't read all of the scripture from 1 Samuel chapter 8 for time's sake, but essentially what took place was a corruption of judges among men and a predominance of a humanistic worldview. When the men saw the corrupt judges, they naturally desired change. First of all, that tells us that to see a difference between right and wrong means we must have some natural intrinsic understanding of morality. To me, that is evidence enough for there being a creator. So the men considered a solution and decided to demand for an earthly man of power to lead. Once the people surrendered power into the hands of a singular, untrustworthy man, they subjected themselves to a lifetime of tyranny. 
I mean, can we really expect a man to be given power and to use said power in a way that does not overstep or infringe upon his subject's rights? We cannot expect an imperfect man to act as God would. God can perfectly reign because he loves and desires what is good for his people. A man cannot do that. He can intend to lead people in the way of righteousness, but he's also evil and wicked in the heart. And if he's not being led by the Spirit, he's going to eventually lead the people astray. And that's especially the case when there are no systems to check that power. So God even warned the people through Samuel of what it would be like to be ruled by a king. First Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 10, states, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain. He will take your donkeys and put them to his work. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. I kind of skipped around a little bit with that, but... All of those verses can be found in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. Essentially, God gave the world a huge, I told you so. He gave them a fair warning, yet they rejected him nonetheless. They were bent on solving the problem of corruption their way rather than relying on God's provision. That whole situation sounds a lot like what we talked about last time in episode 5, where the Anglo-Saxon people had a problem and tried to solve it in their own strength. Their solution was to institute a limited monarchy, which is what got them further and further into having big government rather than limited government, with the majority of the authority being maintained by the people. It was by having a personal copy of the Bible, by reading it, and by internalizing the word, that people were then able to choose a different direction for their government a government given by God for their protection and prosperity, not to be a replacement for God himself. Okay, so now we can get into analyzing the last three influential documents that I was wanting to talk about. We got to the first two in episode five, and now here in episode six, we're going to start with the year 1625. So starting in 1625, we have King Charles I, who was spending carelessly and Parliament, also referred to as the Royal Council, stood up to him and said that they were not going to pass any more of his laws unless he could get his budget under control. He spent a lot of the people's money and was taxing heavily in order to get more and more of it. In response to King Charles's push for increased funding, Parliament essentially threatened to defund Charles. Parliament's actions here demonstrate the concept of a checks and balance system. Charles was not too happy with Parliament's actions, so he decided to take matters into his own hands by dissolving Parliament. He did find himself in a bit of a pickle, though. After dissolving Parliament, Charles recognized that he needed to collect money. But since there was no representation on the people's behalf, 
a revolt against greater taxation would most certainly follow. So instead of creating more taxes, Charles decided to issue a decree to collect money, but he called it a government loan. I was using quotation marks with my hands there, by the way. So yeah, government loan. His scam was detected by the newly awakened people and an uprising led Charles to ask again for Parliament's aid. The rebellion is what produced the third document of influence on this list, and that is the Petition of Right of 1628. The Petition of Rights was of influence to the framing of our Constitution because of its heavy focus on the concept of no taxation without representation. It also was a document created in order to hold governing authorities accountable to the rule of law through a checks and balance system. Charles should have been removed from power, but he was instead allowed to continue his reign. That is, up until he sold his people out to their enemies of war. During the Thirty Years' War, Charles tried yet again to collect money from the people by saying, just give me money and I'll keep you safe. He actually gave the money to England's enemies of war, so he funded them in their pursuit of domination instead of giving the money to England's allies. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, doesn't that scenario ring a, a bell? I mean, to me, that sounds a lot like our government today, how it continues to sell out America to her foreign adversaries. But, you know, the difference <laughs> is that our situation is not a battle of flesh and blood. Ours is a weakening of the nation from within through cultural and economic deterioration. I mean, if you want an example of this, just drive down the street and fill up your tank with gas. I think it's also important to uh, quickly mention that the atrocious reality um, is that the Thirty Years' War was a bloodbath. Millions of reformers were executed and tortured for the preaching of the gospel. It's like I've said before, truly the heart of the Reformation was from a place of personal liberation from sin. The personal liberation gave birth to personal convictions, which then gave birth to a major movement of grassroots level civic engagement. And that's a pattern observable all throughout history. Receiving the gospel delivers people from bondage. Okay, so after Charles was found out to have been a traitor for funding England's enemies, he was tried and executed. But before he died, the contentions within the church and between the king and parliament brought about the drafting of the Grand Remonstrance of 1641, the fourth document on our list. Now, I've actually printed the Grand Remonstrance out and have it here in front of me. And might I just say that this is one interesting document to read. It addresses the corruption of leadership, heavy taxation, a lack of wise counsel, and it also sheds light on the need for church reformation. What's funny, though, is that Parliament and Charles had a really bad relationship. Like, they did not like each other at all. <laughs> but if you read the remonstrance, you'll notice that the verbiage used by Parliament is very two-faced. It's like 
it's like they knocked on the castle door to serve Charles with his lawsuit papers, but handed him a bouquet of flowers first just to to soften the blow. <laughs> so, yeah, Parliament said please and thank you, but they meant business. To address the spiritual oppression, the document states, we, your most humble and obedient subjects, do with all faithfulness and humility beseech your majesty that you will be graciously pleased to concur with the humble desires of your people. See what I mean there by the, the flowers? Um, that has flowers written all over it. For the preserving the peace and safety of the kingdom from the malicious designs of the popish party for depriving the bishops of their vote in parliament and abridging their immoderate power usurped over the clergy and other your good subjects which have been perniciously abused to the hazard of religion and just liberty of your people for the taking away such oppressions in religion, church government, and discipline as have been brought in and fermented by them. That was a lot, but basically what's being said is that a protection is needed to prevent pollution of power from oppressing the people and their liberties. They also addressed these problems seen amongst the advisory of the king. Their document says in a roundabout way, hey Charles, uh, we don't like the people you have in your inner circle, so please remove them. They persist to favor the pressures and corruption, which have caused grievance to the people. So, yeah, get them out, um, or things might not end up too well for you. Yours truly, Parliament. Do you see how this sort of document ended up being important to the drafting of our Constitution? The action steps taken by Parliament to correct Charles's bad behavior influenced the institution of our Constitutional Republic. Parliament stood for the people and did not go down without a fight when the crown tried to overstep its boundaries in overtaxing and infringing upon the liberties of the people in England. Parliament valued religious liberty and saw to it that reformation would be continued. And finally, now we can get into the last document on the list, and that is the English Bill of Rights drafted in 1689. Starting in 1685, James II was King of England. He issued the Declaration of Indulgences, which basically put up a front as being a document of religious liberty, but in fact, it was quite contrary. The document stated that people did not have to be members of the Church of England, which was previously a requirement. Now they could have religious liberty so long as they told the government where they'd be attending church, when they would be attending church, and what exactly would be said during service. They also could not talk badly about the king. Seven bishops stood up to this phony declaration of religious freedom, and King James arrested them. However, they were found not guilty. A rebellion was brought forth, and the English Bill of Rights was produced. The English Bill of Rights played a huge role in the outlining of freedom of religion and speech in our First Amendment. Wow, okay, so we have covered a whole bunch of material, all of which is really beneficial to know in order to begin looking at the framing of the U.S. Constitution.
We briefly covered the Reformation period by looking at reformers such as John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, William Tyndale, and John Calvin. We also looked into a bit of the governmental historical context that caused documents such as the Petition of Rights, the Grand Remonstrance, and the English Bill of Rights to be drafted. The reason I presented both sides of this coin at once is because you cannot understand the changes in government without first understanding the changes in culture. And you can't understand a cultural transformation without analyzing the spiritual motivating factors. Going back to what I said earlier about spiritual liberation giving birth to personal convictions, I think this concept perfectly reflects the opening verses from Ephesians we looked at. People received the gospel and went into the battle. It's the helmet of salvation. The helmet is placed upon our heads to be remembered. It keeps our mind at bay and anchored to God. As people began receiving that salvation, they armored up and were commissioned out by the Holy Spirit to transform the brokenness around them. But it's not just the equipment that makes for the soldier. The battle is what truly makes for a warrior for Christ. I had a friend recently tell me about this beautiful analogy of a knight in shining armor. She said, when a knight is wearing shiny armor, they're not nearly as reliable as the knight that has been beaten up and has battle scars. She was so spot on. You don't want to be the knight that comes out of the battle looking squeaky clean because it's a good indication of not having fought at all. The battle scars reflect the lessons that we learn, which makes us stronger for the trials of life that are ahead. That analogy is so true, especially when it comes to analyzing the action steps taken during the Reformation period. The difficulties endured by the reformers of the Reformation period produced fruit that would last for generations. Not only did that fruit nourish the birth of our nation in 1776, it has also been a great influence to even us in this current day and age. As a 19-year-old living in 2022, I can still go back and read documents such as the Grand Remonstrance, and I can learn from the past. I can be inspired by the courage and boldness of people set free by the liberation of the blood of Christ. And I can make decisions in my life, not only as an individual, but as an American citizen, that can reflect the lessons that I've learned from history. That is how we avoid making the same mistakes over and over again. When we truly learn history and we look at history through the lens of the Bible, we are equipped with all that we need in order to stand firm upon the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Well, that concludes our episode for today. I truly hope you enjoyed listening and I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for tuning into this podcast episode. As I have stated before, I just want people to see the truth and to know the truth. I've gotten to learn so much in the last few months about the founding of our nation and about what true biblical citizenship means. And I know I'm no expert, but as I learn about these things, I become all the more inspired to tell others about what I've learned. And that's truly the heart behind Rooted to Truth. I don't intend to change minds. I just intend to stimulate them using the word of God. 
Rooted to Truth does have a website that I have linked in the podcast episode description. There, you will be able to learn more about the podcast and will be able to access all of the content that's produced for the show. You can also make a donation to support Rooted to Truth on the website. If you are enjoying the content and would like to help me to continue to produce episodes, I'd be absolutely honored to receive your contribution. Also, I recently updated the website so that now you can become a subscriber. Becoming a subscriber is the perfect way to stay in touch and updated with the podcast. You'll receive monthly newsletters, text notifications with a direct link to new episodes once they release, and other special content. So if you haven't already become a subscriber, what are you waiting for? Head on over to the website. With all that being said, I'd like to thank you again for listening. Have a wonderful day and God bless. Thank you.